KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Meadow. This is the Henry George Program, show about land, policy, and politics. In the program, we have a guest who really needs no introduction here on this program. I'll just say UCLA planning professor, the master of parking, we have on Donald Shoup. So without further ado, yeah, let's just uh, get into it. So uh, so thank you so much for being here. Uh, this, is, this is a real honor to have you on the program. Well, thanks for inviting me. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I, we we actually uh, nearly had you on back in 2017. I think the scheduling fell through, but I think right now uh, it's under uh, substantially more auspicious circumstances. Insofar as California has passed and signed uh, AB 2097, the uh, minimum parking abolition bill near near transit. So, uh, why don't you just? I mean, so what is what has been going through your your mind, and what's what's it been like to see this uh, happen this year? Oh, it's like what the hippies used to call a natural high. That uh, I think, uh, you know, some things in life um, take far longer than you thought it would take to happen. Um, But then it happens much faster than you thought it could. And I think that's true with minimum parking requirements. You know, I've been writing about how bad they are since 1978. And more and more people are beginning to realize that they're a bad idea. It sort of spreads the virus. It went viral. The idea of the parking requirements are a terrible idea. Uh, and, uh, and now we're at the point where California is prohibiting cities from uh, imposing it near parking requirements near transit. They, they, and other cities like San Francisco and Buffalo and Hartford and Berkeley have, have removed all their parking, off-street parking requirements. And the off-street parking requirements is the sort of thing that Henry George would have um, resisted uh, because they make it more expensive to build housing. That if you want to uh, to build housing, the city is telling you how many parking spaces you must uh, 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 include regardless regardless of how much the parking spaces cost or how much space they take, uh, how they reduce the supply of housing and increase the price of housing. So it's really like a property tax that pays for parking, uh, for free parking. So it isn't just a, how, uh, like a pro- parking requirement, not just like a parking tax that reduces the amount of housing, but it uses the money to subsidize parking, uh, which then has its own uh, uh, bad effects in the city with air pollution and traffic congestion and pedestrian deaths and like that. So I think I think parking requirements, off-street parking requirements, are, are, are a f- fertility drug for cars. Um, and uh, what I would be more in favor of if the maximum parking limits are like birth control for cars. Uh, so I think that we've been uh, forcing uh, birth. Uh, we, we've been forcing fertility drugs on cars on everybody in every city for about a hundred years. Uh, so maybe it's time to 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 eliminate them. Yeah, I, I, I'm not really much of an Malthusian in general, but as far as cars go, I definitely think we have an overpopulation problem. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you're mentioning Henry George a second ago. I think it's just worth, you know, for people who aren't aware, you know, your kind of, you know, most famous book, The High Cost of Free Parking, has a chapter 
you know, framed around Henry George. And not not only that, but uh, some of your you know, earlier papers uh, were about Im- impacts of uh, land taxes on urban economics. You published in uh, the Tread Conference, which was about, uh, you know, basically a, jo- a Georgia conference. And I guess my question is, you know, could you say a little bit more about your, your personal history working in that field and basically what was the relation of what came like first, I guess, your exposure to the ur- urban economics of Henry George and other kind of uh, kind of uh, subsequent people such as William Vickery and Mason Gaffney or your interest in parking? I'm just kind of curious how this all came together in your personal history. Well, I've never thought of the lake, but I, it must be there because I, I surely would have heard of uh, Henry George first. Uh, and so my mind was receptive to the idea that land, land is important. And uh, yes, with, with, uh, with, that, uh, with Henry George as the background, I certainly recognize that minimum parking requirements uh, do a lot of harm, and just like a, a property tax does. Um, and uh, and then I think maybe the the the, the, the stronger link was that um, a, a surprising amount of land in cities is devoted to parking, uh, and I focused at the beginning on on street parking, curb parking, and uh, in, in many studies I've done that the, the curb lane around the block occupies about. Nine to fifteen percent as much land as the land inside the curb lane. So here, here's a lot of land that's owned by the city, and what does the city do? It gives it away free, and then requires off-street parking for all new buildings. So it's just the opposite of what Henry George would say. Henry George should charge market prices. It's rent. It's land rent. It's in fixed supply, and the demand goes up and down. So the price should go up and down and to balance demand and supply. And the city should collect the, that land rent uh, on land it owns. It isn't taxing private land. It's just managing the land it owns. Um, but instead, cities have done the, the wrong thing. They've made it free. And then they think that the, that the uh, property owners are doing the wrong thing. Uh, that they don't provide enough off-street parking, and we know how much off-street parking is is necessary. So we burden cities with these off-street parking spaces, which consume land and uh, increase the cost of housing and everything else. And the land that we own, um, we we mismanage. We just make it free. We leave it out in the rain, and anybody can have it. So. In, in 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 crowded areas, this means that all the spaces are full and. People drive around hunting for a space that they see being open, uh, hoping to see somebody go out. Uh, and this pollutes the air and congests traffic. And uh, it's the mismanagement of the, this uh, curb lane, which is really valuable land, um, that that has has had ramifications everywhere in the economy. Now the cities require. Off-street parking, say, like for a grocery store. When we go to a grocery store, we expect to find free parking. Uh, but just because the driver doesn't pay for it doesn't mean that the cost goes away. The cost is still there. And somebody has to pay for it. And that somebody is everybody, including people who cannot afford a car. So for somebody who, who, who walks or bikes or takes the bus to the, to the grocery store, 
they have to pay higher prices for grocery stores so richer people can park free when they get there. Um, so free parking is a very uh, un-Henry Georgist idea. But I don't think Henry Georgists have, have taken much of an interest in this policy. I've spoken at, I think, the, an annual Henry George conference. And I've, let me see, uh, Mason Gaffney, who was a famous Georgist, I spoke at his class. But one of the funniest things that happened to me was I was uh, invited to somebody's house, uh, partly because the next door neighbor was a famous advocate of Henry George, that they had, he devoted almost all his life to Henry George in, in advocating things. He gave a lot of money. I, it, it, after he died, he left most of his money to the Henry George Foundation. But when I talked to him about parking, as which our, our mutual friends thought that, that this Henry Georges would be interested in what I'm saying, he didn't have receptive. Uh, and then uh, Later on, I had written another article about why Henry George would, would like uh, charging for curb, market prices for curb parking. And he wrote back a show note saying, I hate to pay for parking. So I think Henry Georgist have not, <laughs> have not really understood that this land that the city owns is, is mismanaged. And instead, they say, well, let's tax it. Off-street land values. Let's tax land value. That's what we ought to do. So the, the, the they take the low-hanging fruit and forget about it, and then aim for something that is probably not going to happen. And I was thinking when I was wondering what should I say to you, and I was thinking that uh, that in the 19th century, as you know, the late 19th century, Henry George was the uh, the, the main radical in, in economy, Karl Marx, hardly anybody had heard of him, uh, only a, f a few left-wing academics. But Henry George was a, a, a very, uh, well, he was like Martin Luther King of land or something like that. Everybody knew about it. Um, but I think that was probably because in the 19th century, most people did not own land. Um, uh, they, most people were renters, especially homeowners. People, for the residents, it's far more common to rent your housing than, than to own it. So a land tax didn't threaten many people. It, it, it seems like it would be the Vanderbilts who would be paying for a parking, for, for, for the land, land tax. Um, but now uh, most people own their own homes. You know, two-thirds of all homes are, are owner-occupied. And people have a a uh, a special interest, and in many cases they would see their taxes go up. And I think that Henry George has fallen out of fashion because there are far too many people who would be harmed by it, and the people who would be helped by it don't know who they are. Um, so I thought I'll focus on this ribbon of land around the blocks uh, that the that maybe we could do something with, and I I have a very Henry Georgist policy as to how to charge the right price for 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 land in the curb lane, and that is to spend all the meter revenue to pay for added public services on the metered blocks. So if your block has parking meters that are dynamically priced, so they charge the right price. 
your block will get uh, all new sidewalks and graffiti removed and street tree planted. Uh, some cities give free transit passes to everybody who lives or works on the block. Some of them give them free Wi-Fi on the block for everybody on the block. So they understand that they ought to charge for curb parking. <laughs> Uh, that because if they don't charge for curb parking, they won't get any of these benefits. So it's a Henry George's thing. We're using land rent, the land rent from publicly owned land, and we spend it to uh, uh, in a skillful way so that it gets a political majority saying, let's do this in a way that I don't think is easy to do with land taxation. Uh, so I think is Henry George's insights, which are really um, agreed to by most economists, uh, really help here. I think most economists, uh, most Nobel Prize winners in economics, say that you know this is a good tax, but they leave it at that because it's it's hard to devote much of your time to saying uh, we ought to tax land. But it's very difficult to do. I mean, not, not only politically, but also um, in practice. It's hard to assess land value. Um, uh, it's uh, because it's mixed in with property values. And, but but uh, the curb lane is very easy to price. It's like a spot market in land that uh, that um, that the price. Is, yes, it, it's for for. The smallest unit of land that is uh, uh, rented around the world, and it's the same everywhere, all around the world. Uh, it's the same unit, about 18 feet by eight feet of, of publicly owned land. Um, and you could change the price uh, uh, every hour, and it's different prices in different places, like they have in San Francisco. Yeah, it's never improved. It's very fungible. People are always moving around. You, you get a lot of new data points all the time. Exactly. That's yeah. right. That's why it's so easy to say this is the right price. You just have to look at the block and say, well, if half the spaces are are, are empty, the price is too high. If, no spaces are open, the price is too low. That's the easiest way to assess land value, just by looking at it. Uh, there's no specialist needed. And I just finished a, a paper on how this would work out on the Upper West Side of New York, which is famous for its parking problems. Um, and uh, there are, in the Upper West Side, there are 20, 22 people, 22 residents for every free parking space. So you see, politically, a lot of people would gain if we started getting free transit passes or free Wi-Fi or clean and safe sidewalks. They would get that by if the city charged for curb parking and spent the revenue to pay for uh, public services. So that that sort of out of the 22 peoples, 21 would pay nothing. Uh, and they would get very good service. So it's the opposite of Henry George's uh, um, politics now is that you, you get a lot of people who know who they are. They know they're the beneficiaries. They know they're in a huge majority and they have a lot to gain. And uh, that's that's a very Henry George would say that's a good idea, I think. Uh, but it's hard to replicate that kind of politics with a land value tax. 
Yeah, I think in, in general, the combination of policy and politics is, is, is really key. And I think uh, one would definitely be, I, I don't know how fair it would be to say to you know, Henry George and the Georgist movement, but there are definitely people who I think could be vulgar idealists who believe if you have the right idea out there, policy will take care of itself. People listen to reason and, you know, we, we don't we don't really live in that world. And as you say, uh, you know, you have to look at material interests, different stakes, different investments people have made. And yeah, I, mean, I think there is many uh, things you can say are the same between basically the blocks of land which are developed into buildings and, you know, curbside parking. One big difference is, you know, we haven't privatized the curb parking to that to really any of the same degree, which is to say it would be a lot harder to do this if you had a investor stake who like would really, really hate to see this readministered. Uh, if they could basically slurp up those rents themselves, as opposed to just public mismanagement, which is what we have now. Well, I agree. You, you said it uh, perfectly, except for the word privatize. I, I think charging for curb parking does not privatize curb parking. It's more like what uh, used to be called market socialism. Um, uh, the government owns the land. Uh, that's a very socialist principle. Uh, the government charges market prices to manage the land, and then it spends the revenue to pay for public services. Um, that's not privatization. Uh, that is market socialism. Yeah, I, I think to, to clarify, I was speaking more of privatization if they were to actually condoize or sell it off, or I guess like I believe that was Mayor Daley in Chicago sold off all the meter parking for a century or something like that. Yes, but not individual spaces. Uh, and I suppose that is, I, I don't know if that's privatization. Maybe, maybe I hadn't thought about that. Maybe you're right. That's right. Selling the, the they, they didn't sell the spaces. They sold the revenue for 75 years, which is an absurdly long time. Yeah. Um, so, so I think it'd be better for the city manager or or hired a private operator. You know, many cities they they don't have the capacity to manage prices by the hour or by the minute and, and set them so that there'll be about an eighty five percent occupancy rate. Uh, there are a number of, of very large companies that that um, that will do it for a fee that like a management fee uh they'll they have the goals they have to meet and they uh, they because they do it in so many cities they can do it very efficiently they choose the best technology and they uh, use the best statistics uh, say in la where we do this they they collect the uh, occupancy data you know that's which is getting much cheaper to, to, to measure. And they send it to France for analysis by a, 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 a high-tech statistical company. And the, uh, the French company, well, Conduit, it's a, na a nation, it's a worldwide company. They send back the recommendations for the, for the prices the next month. Uh, so and cities couldn't do this. You couldn't expect an average, you know, uh, uh, city parking department to know exactly how to buy the the meters and how to maintain them and how to collect the revenue and how to, how to analyze the results. So 
I, I don't know if you want to call that privatization. I think it's it's simply um, hiring a manager. That's uh, delegating work, I guess. You know, in some way, more than really ownership ownership of an asset in any significant way. That's right. The government owns the the, the asset, and it uh, the and it spends the money on public services. So I think that you'll never get people to to, to want to pay for curb parking. But you can get people to want to charge for curb parking. If you know that if you charge for curb parking, you'll have free transit passes and free Wi-Fi. Well, of course, you'll say probably, yes, I'd rather have this than, than free curb parking if I don't own a car or if I park off street. So, but it's that's that politics are hard to manage with taxation on private property, private land. I mean, we have property taxes. It's easy enough. Well, it's it's hard enough to 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 assess regular property taxes. You know that they wildly uh, um, underestimate or overestimate property values. In, in California, we have Proposition Thirteen, which is the opposite of Henry George. We limit the property taxes uh, uh, for until. They're capped for as long as you own your property. It's like rent control for property. And, and, and Proposition 13 is very popular. Well, certainly for people, I, uh, people enjoy it, certainly. But even, I think, polling would say that even people who are directly harmed, they're not as aware as perhaps they should be. And, you know, that's a ma major problem of, you know, when a vague, you know, uh, when a vague collective interest you know, it just doesn't really make itself known to the to the people who could benefit because it's perhaps, you know, very, very spread out or very confusing or boring, <laughs> which all this, you know, I think taxes and, and you know, to you know, to the same extent, you know, parking uh, policy isn't something that, you know, has a heavy appeal to perhaps the most, you know, kind of normal, you know, unplugged in person. It's usually kind of people of a very special interest who really... Uh, Yes, but the, the cities have to create those special interests by saying, if you have parking meters, this is what you'll get. You, and this is what you won't get if you don't have parking meters. So I think it's, it's that, that's the, the, the key to unlock this. I think, well, I think, I, well, the shoot dogma is, has three elements, is that uh, charge the right price for curb parking and spend the revenue to pay for public improvements on the metered streets. And third is to remove off-street parking requirements. And I think all three of these are sort of the three legs of a stool. If you do all three of them, they'll, they'll work very well. Or it's like, it's like uh, having a combination lock at the gym that uh, each turn of the dial doesn't seem to do much. But after the third turn of the dial, the lock opens. And I think these parking benefit districts are unlocking the value of the land the curb laid in, in many around the world, cities around the world. So, did you have thoughts offhand? Because I mean, there's another parallel you could uh, you can make to basically pollution, carbon emissions, and a lot of people are proposing instead of a local benefit district, uh, you know, what they would call basically a tax and dividend policy, where there are revenues, but they're basically divvied out not in terms of in kind, you know, I guess uh, programs or infrastructure as much as just basically you know, writing a check. And I mean, I think that ideally you would have public infrastructure, sidewalk improvements that would seem very physical, meaningful. There's a good feedback loop. I, I guess I worry, even in some cities, you see a lot of 
cost disease, a lot of problems where maybe people don't really don't have as much faith in the public works. I, that's one argument. You could say that maybe uh, may, maybe seeing people actually get uh, you know cut a check could also be you know a way to see this too. Yes, like like Henry George, you you have to uh, uh, study these issues to some extent uh, before you you understand what works. And I think that with, with parking benefit districts, the advantage is what what's happened in, in many cities. You started in, in in one area, old Pasadena in Southern California, is the poster child for this. Um, where it was a commercial skid row for many years. And uh, it, 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 like older cities, there were wonderful buildings in terrible condition. Uh, most of them were vacant above the ground floor. And a lot of the ground floor was vacant. And graffiti everywhere. People thought it would never recover. But uh, then the city offered to, uh, uh, wanted to put in parking meters. And the people said, no way. It'll chase away the few customers we have. And they said, well, if we put in the parking meters, we'll, we'll spend all the revenue on, on public improvements in Old Pasadena, and the, immediately the merchants and the property owners and the businesses and said, well, that's different. Why didn't you tell us then? Let's run the meters till midnight. Let's run them on Sunday. Let's charge a high price. So it's simply because the city made it possible for them to cash in on the value of, uh, of the curb lane. But then other parts of town saw this working and other parts of town petitioned, can we have parking meters? If one it happens in one part of town, it often spreads to other places because they can see the differences. That the there there are differences, the benefits that you can't see, like cleaner air or or lower carbon emissions. But those don't motivate anybody to say, "I want a parking meter on my street because it will reduce carbon emissions." It's only it's only the the the. Uh, the neighborhood local benefits that you get that cause you to say, I want to have parking meters. So I guess uh, there's another question about politics, too. And I'm kind of curious, you know, if, if uh, you've written, I guess, more about it. You, you've definitely written times about there's an opportunity cost about, you know, allocating curb parking for curb parking is certainly one use. And it basically allows for, you know, it, it, it regulates the access by cars, generates revenue. Uh, but there's other options. You could have, for example, bike lanes. You could have wider sidewalks. You could have you know, trees. You could have all sorts of things. And I guess what you know, there's less of a direct revenue you know line for these things. Uh, I guess you it would be more abstract to say what is the advantage of removing curb parking from half of all blocks and turning it into bike lanes. And I yes, suppose yeah. too, if you have stakeholders, how how do you overcome this as well? Well, I think that's an excellent question. I, I, I'll have to think about it as I go along. But uh, I, I'm saying I'm not saying that in a parking benefit district, um, all of the curb lane has to be parking. But for the uh, parking there is, they ought to charge the right price um, to leave one or two open spaces, and they ought to spend the revenue on the on the public services on the metered blocks. But it will also show, these prices will show that in many parts of town, the, the curb parking is not worth that much. 
if you start charging for it, people will start parking off street uh, or they won't come at the peak hour uh, that that uh, in many parts of town already, you can see that many, many of the spaces are open. It'll show you that the curb parking isn't worth that much. And yet, whenever the city proposes a, 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 a bus, a exclusive bus lane, people say you're taking away our precious curb parking. You can say anything is precious until you put it up for auction. And then I think that the parking benefit districts will show that, that many blocks, the curb parking is not very expensive and it would be much more valuable uh, as a bus lane or a bike lane um, because it will save time for, for many bus passengers. It'll make the, 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 the schedule more reliable. It'll save money for the bus company because their buses will be going faster. Uh, and for a bike lane, it could carry many more people than, than a few unused cars. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you could have hundreds of bicyclists rather than a few unused uh, cars. So I think that charging the right price of the curb lane will show that, well, maybe we should, like in Palo Alto, we put, uh, the, instead of planting the, uh, the street trees on the sidewalk, we plant them in the curb lane. Uh, it looks better. Um, uh, and once you decide to have a, a, a outdoor restaurants in the curb lane, if there are street if parking uh, parking spaces go, that you have all that's left is the streets in the curb lane, and they they're a barrier against people running, uh, you know, driving along and running into your drifting into your, your your outdoor restaurant. Yeah. So I think that uh, the outdoor restaurants in the curb lane uh, hire many more people, and, uh, serve many more people, uh, provide much more sales taxes than a few uh, empty cars. Uh, so I think that if we priced curb parking, we would learn that it was a very low priority in many areas. Yeah, I think that's that's yeah, really you know it, it, uh, a point that yeah, people should let sink in because it it goes I, the way that I think you know historically and just kind of the entire ideology about parking it I wonder how much of it was very specifically about a history and a time in a place for example like you know Los Angeles a hundred years ago there were it was basically still a lot of open frontier. And when people drove down Wilshire for decades and decades, of course, you'll always find free parking and it kind of became a norm. There will always be places that are being developed that will have abundant street parking. So we kind of created, as far as our societal goals, the perpetuation of everyone should have basically a street parking which feels abundant. And we, you know, that's really to a large extent what off-street parking attempts to achieve. It, it gives this illusion that the frontier, that abundance is still there, even when, you know, you don't really have abundance. You have a certain amount of resources and we're just, you know, doing a whole lot of implicit regulation to make them seem abundant. You know, exactly. Um but I think yes, and I and I think we're now at a, a at a point where almost everybody owns a car. Hmm. See, they're an interest group. Like property owners don't want to pay uh, land value taxes, um, and drivers don't want to pay for parking. Uh, 
so the 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 the, the it's easy to charge for parking up until now it's been hard to convince people that we should charge for parking but i think now these parking benefit districts will be a political key to uh to having everybody say well yes i want parking meters on my block you know, i don't want them on everybody else's block but i want them on my block uh and i think that the, the, there will be a new golden rule for parking prices charge others what they would charge you that well that they always say you know, the economy is people taking in each other's wash <laughs> but i think we'll be paying each other for parking uh uh, whatever we leave our own neighborhood, we'll be paying for parking in other people's neighborhoods, uh, but they will be paying for parking in my neighborhood when, the, when they come. So I think that, that even though most people are drivers and never want to pay for parking, uh, that uh, they'll understand that they want to charge for parking. And that, that's the, 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 the uh, Achilles heel of, of, of the Henry Georges is that the, the Henry Georges uh, were persuaded that we ought to tax land rather than improvements. Uh, but it's hard to get many people to see that it's in their interest. And I, I think economists are quite you know, comfortable in appealing to other people's self-interest. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but if you try to and, and, and sometimes you really have to appeal to public interest uh, for, well, say for global warming, because uh, nobody has a self-interest in this. Uh, they have a, that there's a worldwide interest. Uh, and it's hard to uh, to motivate people to, to do something for a lot of other people. Yeah, and I think, you know, as far as, you know, interest goes, there's definitely something of a generation gap. Uh, you could say, certainly with housing, you know, you know, people who are, you know, who have bought a home decades ago, especially with Prop 13 benefits, they're quite secure compared to the housing instability of uh, younger people relatively. So there's something of an interest block. And to the same degree, I think, you know, you could talk about how much is cultural versus, you know, more of a a real basis, but, you know, younger people put a higher priority about, you know, walkable, bikeable, you know, areas that aren't really about driving to parking lots everywhere. And I think it's, I, I think you were definitely ahead of the curve of, of speaking to the fact that our cities should have more human uh, kind, of, kind of goals than, than basically just abundant parking being the only goal. Yes, I think you're right. I mean, that, uh, I think that people want walkable neighborhoods for themselves, though, not for the world. It's that they're not, they're not doing this as a charity work. I think that this is the kind of world they want to live in. Um, and uh, it won't cost them anything. Uh, so I think, yes, the, 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 it is, as they say in science, uh, you know, science marches on funeral by funeral. That as a new generation comes in, they have different ideas, uh, they they have different interests. Uh, so I think that in, at least in California, the California Yimby movement is the is the the, the headquarters of it. Uh, they pushed very hard for the the new uh, Assembly Bill 2097, which is the state law that 
prohibits cities from requiring off-street parking within a half mile of a transit stop. Say without the support of, of of young people like that, I don't think it would have happened to say because it, it, most cities say that that planning for land use is a local responsibility that we shouldn't be told what to do uh, from from the state. And here's the, the state coming in with a, a very strong prohibition on something that that a lot of people want at the local level. I mean, if you if you ask people, do you want to have all street parking requirements at grocery stores that most people would say yes that they're popular among the nimbies Nim- nimbies want uh free parking in their neighborhood and the, the the parking requirements prohibit many kinds of developments so nimbies often object to something a new mcdonald's because they think well it doesn't have enough parking and it makes it sound as though everybody wants more parking when they really don't want mcdonald's uh so uh, they hide behind <laughs> the the, uh, the 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 distaste for mcdonald's as uh, as really uh uh, distaste, yeah, they, they don't want anything new in their neighborhoods. They want to keep it the way it is. Uh, so I think that, uh, yes, you're, you're right. I think as new generations come along, they'll think differently, and I hope they'll think differently about Parker. I, I wonder, too, you know, AB 2097, you know, what are we going to see as the effects uh, as this as this goes on? Uh, I, I think that you can you know, can look at, at different places that have done reforms in the past, such as San Diego, to look at how it has changed. But I think it's really interesting to look at the combination of parking reform and you know, basically a higher magnitude of housing production, which is going to come online due to basically state mandates, the Reno program. So we're going to see more housing being built. We're going to see it, you know, a lot of it's going to be near transit. And what happens then, we're going to see a protection of you could underpark your buildings, which means, it'll, you know, I think in a very real way, and I consider a positive thing, it will be if you think that you can, through underproduction of housing, keep your curbs nice and, you know, flowing, that's going away. I, I think we're going to see basically either you are going to manage your curb parking well or you're going to be swamped. So I, I think yeah. in, in the past, maybe called carrot and stick, you know, a carrot would be basically, a, you know, a benefits program. It's like, oh, we should use this money to get better infrastructure. A stick would be, you better have a good program or you're going to have a miserable time. And I think, uh, I think <laughs> we're, we're going to see a lot of both is my, is my impression. I, I'm just saying, I think housing is going to get a lot of momentum here. Yes, I think that's exactly right. So that there'll be both a carrot and a stick operating to get the right amount of parking um, in these districts where there's no minimum parking requirement. Because uh, uh, removing the off-street parking requirement doesn't mean removing parking. Um, the developers want to have enough parking so that they can uh, lease or sell their properties. Uh, they they don't want to have too much that uh, you know another level of underground parking that nobody uses adds to the cost but not the value of the building. So they have the individual incentive to provide the right amount of parking, uh, and if they provide say uh, one parking space for every two apartments. 
they'll have to unbundle the price of parking from their price of housing. And if, if, if one apartment uh, has uh, one parking space included in the, in the purchase price or the rent, and the, the one next to it, otherwise identical, doesn't have a parking space, you, you wouldn't expect the, both of the price for both apartments to be the same. I mean, who would want to, if you don't have a car, why would you pay a higher price for an apartment with, with a parking space? So the people who will save of, from remo- removing parking requirements are the people who don't own a car or are willing to give up a car. Um, so it, 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 the, the savings will be passed on to the to the to the residents who are car light, um, and and there will be the incentive for the developer to provide the right amount of parking, at least what the market uh, demands. So I think it'll, it'll be slow before anything happens. I mean, the, the, uh, I think some of the first things to do is that some small parking lots will be converted into housing or businesses because the, the often small parking lots can't be anything else because you can't get a building and the required parking onto the same piece of land. So I think a lot of small parking lots will be developed as housing or, or businesses. Uh, and there'll be the opportunity to uh, use your building for whatever you want. There are a lot of older buildings that don't have any parking because they were built before parking requirements. And if you want to have a shoe store in it and they want to close that and open a restaurant, the planners will say, well, where's your required parking? So the parking requirements prohibit the reuse of many of the most uh, historic buildings. You know, the buildings we want to save uh, that the parking requirements make it impossible to use. So I think that's the kind of thing that will happen at the be- uh, early years. It's like in Pasadena, when they put in the parking meters, in the first five years uh, of parking meters and spending the revenue, th- their sales taxes tripled. And the sales taxes are, are, an, are a measure of business activity. So it showed that putting in the parking meters tripled the amount of business activity in the metered area. So you can't say the parking meters are going to kill business <laughs> if it triples <laughs> their revenue uh, in, in, in five years. I wonder, too, I mean, I, you see like kind of the short-term effects. Do you, do you think much about kind of the longer-term effects? Like, for example, kind of the expansion of the car, like 100 years ago, it feels like it's been around forever, but like the modern supermarket did not exist 100 years ago. The idea of a large grocery store with, you know, basically, you know, off street parking, uh, but people would make kind of large purchases, uh, you know, in a, in a cash and carry basis. You know, that didn't exist, you know, basically in the pre car cities. People would either, you know, buy much smaller quantities or would get them delivered. And, you know, really, I wonder if like how much of what we see is kind of modern retail, if this is going to kind of re-evolve in a different direction, if, if we'd see this. I mean, I suppose it, you yeah. know, yeah. And I, I, I it, and to see, I mean, places that have much less car ownership, they certainly have retail that functions in a different way. And I, I'm just kind of curious if you have any kind of like more of the galaxy brained ideas of how you see kind of cities evolving or is it just going to be like things are going to be more like Japan or something? Well, yes, that's an excellent uh, example that I think uh, 
I was once speaking in China, and uh, there were people from experts from around the world who went to this conference on on China uh, or parking in China. And at the end of it, maybe about a dozen of the speakers were uh, at a round table, or the our host was sort of, sort of debriefing us, and he uh, he asked, "Well, what's what cities do you think has the best parking policy in the world? And I think that the Chinese host was not happy, but almost everybody said Tokyo hmm. has the best parking policies because they prohibit uh, on-street parking and they require very little off-street parking. And they require you to prove that you have an off-street parking space to, to get permission to buy a car. And it's the most walkable city, a big city around, because there just aren't many parked cars on the street. There's and a few cities, streets allow it, but and the, there's absolutely no parking overnight on the street. You know, that they'll tow your car away if they see a car parked on the street at night. Um, so, but I think uh, instead of the future, I could look to the past because I could remember when I was a student in the 1950s in college that there were a lot of uh, small grocery stores. I, I, I was told there were 600 neighborhood grocery stores in New Haven, Connecticut. And we could walk uh, a short distance to two of these small grocery stores. And neither of them had any park. Uh, and almost all of those neighborhood grocery stores are gone. I think all of them are gone. And we have nothing but giant supermarkets. Because if you have a car uh, and the parking is free at a supermarket, it's terrific. Uh, uh, why would you pay higher prices to be without a car and walk? So I think there would be more smaller grocery stores. It doesn't mean that they'll, they'll be without parking, but they'll have to start charging for parking. I think we ought to start charging for parking everywhere. Uh, and I think if you began charging for parking and, allow, and removing off-street parking requirements, on the perimeter of many of these parking lots, uh, you could build housing. You could, uh, the new urbanists call them liner buildings, that the land is no longer required for parking, and most of it is, is vacant most of the time anyway, and, uh, except at Trader Joe's. Uh, and uh, uh, Trader Joe's is, is owned by a German company, and they don't, never provide free parking at their grocery stores in Germany. Uh, so I think they're, they're, uh, Yes, they, they never provide more parking than is required. And as I am told, that they have a lot of pedestrian uh, customers, and they have the highest sales per square foot of any kind of store in the United States. People complain about the lack of parking, but it has the highest sales per square foot of the floor area uh, of any stores in the United States. So I think that, that there's a lot of land available uh, for for building on that, that, you know, the Netherlands reclaimed land from the sea. And I think America can reclaim land from its parking lots. Uh, it will be the biggest red land reclamation policy outside the Netherlands. Because suddenly these lots be, be something that you could do whatever you want with it. You could build housing on it. Uh, you could build offices on it. You could build anything on it. So I think that they will see these liner buildings as you walk along the sidewalk, it'll look like a real city. It'll be much more walkable. 
I, I suppose that speaks to something else too, which if if Trader Joe's is unusual for not building more parking than required, uh, an unfortunate kind of you know consequence would be that AB twenty ninety seven basically slashing minimums won't really be enough for people to overbuild due to you know this is the way we do things here, you know, basic, you know, policy or just whatever, even if it's irrational, a lot of people are still perhaps going to do stuff. Maybe bankers are going to be cautious. And I suppose the obvious answer is something you spoke about before, you know, parking maximums can in, in fact be a thing too for off street parking. Uh, I mean, do you, do, what, what do you, what are your thoughts about, you know, what, what, what do you see as the, the future of, of parking maximums or other ways to kind of make sure that people don't have big parking lots, even when they're not forced to? Well, I think that, uh, you know, San Jose is, uh, like Los Angeles, uh, the two highest cities to have the, 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 the two, the two cities that have the highest number of parking space per square mile. Uh, we, we, LA has the highest number of parking spaces per square mile of any city on earth, and San Jose is almost like it. Because we're, we're, LA is high density, uh, but it also has parking requirements. We have a lot of people, and they all drive. So that's why we have this terrible traffic congestion in, in LA and, and, and San Jose. And there are uh, a lot of, of, uh, uh, you know, industrial campuses or commercial campuses, Cisco Systems has one of the, the biggest uh, campus, as they call it, in, in the county. And uh, the buildings are in the middle of the parking lots because that minimizes the walking distance between the, your car and your and your office. So I think if, if Cisco were allowed to say, well, you could build on the perimeter, you could build housing, which is wildly expensive in San Jose. And the traffic congestion is terrible. The computes are so long. So you would have work adjacent housing. Um, it, it, it's a beautiful part of the world. If you're a car, uh, I mean, you're sitting there, you have these great views of the mountains, <laughs> but uh, and a lot of the, the, the spaces are empty. So if, if Cisco were allowed and other uh, big corporations were allowed to build housing on the perimeters of their parking lots, they would have work adjacent housing. And, they could, uh, and if one, one company did this, uh, the, the other people saw it, they would say, we can do this too. So I think it would be, there would be a few leaders where the, the land is clearly empty. Almost all the parking spots are all, almost vacant almost all the time. So you're not going to lose much by converting it into housing. And they make a ton of money uh, from uh, the land value. And the they understand that, uh, that you can import cars and fuel, but you can't import apartment houses. You have to have day laborers and, and carpenters and uh, drywallers and electricians and plumbers and architects. A lot of people will be, will make money uh, providing this housing as long as soon as the city prevents it. And I think San Jose is on the verge of removing its off street parking requirements. So I think you will see that 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 there be a follow the leader policy that the, 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 the early adopters of saying I'm going to build. 
uh, six-story apartment building lining my parking lot. It will transform the sidewalk uh, because it could be have ground floor uses of grocery stores or whatever. Uh, and, um, and the employees could walk across the parking lot to their to the offices at Cisco. Uh, and you'd have to charge for curb parking to make this work. So you'd have to charge the residents for parking in what's remaining of the parking lot. The parking lot would be shared by the, the housing on the perimeter and the office building in the center. Uh, and if you charge the right price for curb parking, there'd be a lot of money to pay for public services on the meter street. So I think if, if I were your age, and if you were as optimistic as I am, I think that there are a lot of opportunities for, for a, a better world, one parking space at a time. It's a very interesting time right now, too. I mean, who knows if this is going to last, but if you're in the world of commercial real estate, office, you know, office, you know, tenancy, people are unnerved. Uh, work from home is basically reducing utilization of office real estate to the point that these parking lots are emptier than usual. So if you're going to redevelop it, uh, redevelop all these lots, right now there might be more desperation to, to do something, uh, you know, kind of novel like that. Uh, downtown Los Angeles is said to have the largest collection of intact office buildings from the early uh, 20th century. Wonderful Beaux-Arts buildings and modern buildings. Uh, just terrific architecture. Uh, there was a height limit of 12 stories in, in those years, or 120 feet. Uh, it was called the Wall Street of the West. It was the most uh, one. When you look at pictures of it, the, the, the sidewalks were thronged with people. There were trolley cars going down the streets, and then, of course, the uh, the automobile came along, and uh, the Great Depression and World War II, and then. Everybody got cars, and the urban renewal came along. And LA's urban renewal program was different from most cities, or maybe all cities. Instead of tearing these wonderful buildings down, which were too expensive to tear down, they simply moved. They created a new downtown. They demolished uh, uh, wonderful old housing on Bunker Hill, just complete, cleaned it off and leveled it. And said, this is the new downtown. And they were heavily subsidizing new office buildings and new apartment buildings. And the old part of L.A. was was left to Boulder. The, the, all the, the Class A office buildings were now on Bunker Hill rather than on Spring Street. So for decades, the area declined. And first, the office buildings were turned into sweatshops for clothing manufacturing. And then that didn't make any profit. And then they were empty above the ground floor. Uh, and it was a skid row, and people thought it would never come back. But one planner, Alan Bell, came up with this idea of adaptive reuse. And the city in 1998 uh, said, passed law saying you could convert these office buildings into housing without any parking, uh, new parking. Uh, previously, they couldn't convert it into housing because there was a parking requirement. You can't convert an empty office building into housing if you don't meet the parking requirement. Uh, so people said this will be a disaster, that no banks will lend for the conversions, uh, which is a very uh, large amount of money. And no bank will give mortgages on a 
apartments that uh, don't have parking. Who would want to live in an apartment without parking? Well, in the next eight years, 57 historic office buildings were converted into housing. There was the most magnificent historic restoration, uh, which employed so many people in the conversion. And it didn't just lead to uh, uh, individual buildings being preserved, but it led to the the, uh, preservation of an entire historic preservation district and and enliven one building isn't going to make a whole lot of difference but 57 converted office buildings will make a huge difference and this this project showed what what parking requirements had been preventing you normally can't see what doesn't happen but what wasn't happening was converting these wonderful old office buildings into housing and as soon as you took off the parking requirement it, it took off so i and, and that went spread to other parts of the city that worked so well in downtown they tried it elsewhere and uh, it hasn't spread throughout the country as i hoped it would but i think that 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 didn't take a long time to happen and the the first uh a developer who converted four bank buildings uh, into uh, into apartments. And he also bought a parking structure. He was very clever. He bought a parking structure and the four bank buildings. And you previously couldn't convert the bank building into housing because the parking has to be on the site of the housing. See, it has to be on site parking. So if you have a freestanding bank building that you can't convert it into housing. Now they were wonderful buildings. And he was a pioneer. Uh, people thought he was crazy. That who would, who would uh, uh, rent or buy an apartment without any parking? And he told me, I was a guest in his apartment. He said, "Listen, there are 12 million people in, in in Southern California. All I have to do is find 400 people who were willing to live without a car, and that's my market." That's funny. So I think that's how we will see that uh, that, that, that 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 a new world will sort of creep in, uh, where where it, where it's easiest to move in, where it's most valuable to move in, uh, and I think that uh, as people see the results uh, and and increased property values as well. Uh, that they'll say, well, yes, Henry George did have something to say about land value that we ought to pay attention to. Well, thank you so much for making the time here. Actually, well, just one very quick question that comes up in George's circles uh, before uh, before closing out. Uh, there was the economist who worked with William Vickery, you know, uh, uh, back in you know starting the '30s, uh, Carl Shoup. And people ask, are you of relation to him or not? And I've always, you know. Yeah, his name is Carl Schaup. It was the, 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 the back back in the day that his Carl Schaup was the uh, a, a great railroad baron. Uh, he was the president of the the uh, Southern Pacific Railway Company, and he uh, was also the president of the the uh, uh, Pacific Electric Railway lines in Los Angeles. So many people ask me this. There is a Lily Schaup who's also a transportation economist. So we're distant related, but um, not close. And and, and of course, William Vickery is the 
is the the uh, the godfather of the proper price is the way that Henry George is the godfather of uh, proper land use, and, and William Vickery was the first person who who said that the curb parking should be priced uh, so that the, the demand is kept down, so that there's always one or two vacant spaces. So he was the one. So he, so so, so William Vickery and Henry George taken together uh, are, are, are a great guide on how we should manage land in cities. Well, thank you so much again for uh, for making the time here today. It's been it's been a pleasure. Okay, nice talking to you. <laughs> yeah, sure. Bye. We have been talking to Donald Choup all about parking for the last hour here. You can find this episode and all previous episodes of this radio program at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Keys Issue, Stanford 2023-2024.